What's up, everybody? Hello, hello. Thank you for joining Space Talk today. My name is Athena Brentsberger, and I am the host of Space Talk. Um, firstly, just want to thank you all for being here and patiently waiting about the extra extra 10 minutes. We had a little bit of a late start. Um, I am currently toilet training my kitten. Um, so, uh, as you can imagine, accidents happen, and just before uh, 3 o'clock on the dot, um, she just went running through the house and ended up just kind of going wherever she could. So it was <laughs> sort of chasing around a, a little kitten for for a little bit. So thank you for, for waiting. Um, and it does sound kind of crazy. Yes, I did say toilet train, not litter box train. She's actually trained for litter box. But I'm using this thing that uh, was actually on Shark Tank. I used it on my previous kitten, or my previous cat, actually, to train him to use the toilet. And... Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's about a seven-week process, so sometimes it takes a little long. But anyway, so with that being said, um, happy Monday. I hope you're all doing fabulously or you are just doing well. Regardless, um, I'm just personally happy that the skies are clearing up and that the snow is melting away, at least where I am here in Texas, um, as opposed to, I know some of my, my friends and my, my family back home in New York are still dealing with that snow uh, from the Nor'easter. So wherever you are, hope um, you have clear skies. So as I mentioned last week, I want to start starting these podcast episodes with astronomy picture of the day. I'm a huge fan of APOD. Um, if you don't know about it, go to apod.nasa.gov, and every day there's a new image that's uploaded of different pictures in astronomy. So we're going to talk a little bit about it for like probably two minutes, and then we're going to jump into what we usually do on the Monday of every week, which is talking about what you can catch in the night sky for this week, as well as space history, astronomy word of the week, and the moon phase. So the image, if you want to pull it up with me, if you have your computer in front of you, is NGC 4651, the Umbrella Galaxy. So if you've been kind of following along here on Space Talk, uh, we've been talking a lot about the different catalog names, and that's because of a series that we also do that's ongoing, which is um, how are space objects named? And last week was galaxies. And so that brought us to the new general catalog, which is what the NGC is in this galaxy's name. So it's a new general catalog, which means it was a galaxy that was discovered more recently. So um, probably starting, actually starting around the time of the Herschels. So that was uh, around like early 1800s um, and then going into even modern day whenever there's a new discovery made. So the Umbrella Galaxy, it says it's raining stars and what appears to be a co giant cosmic umbrella is known to be a tidal stream of stars stripped from a small satellite galaxy. So I think what would probably be the best approach to take when it comes to the APOD is sort of breaking down not every sentence, but at least some of the sentences. Um, so what we got going on here, a satellite galaxy is uh, kind of like how the moon is our natural satellite, natural satellite to Earth. So we have a galaxy that's orbiting another galaxy. Uh, most likely, the galaxy that is doing the orbiting, the one that is the satellite, is usually smaller. It's usually getting pulled in by a more massive galaxy. Uh, so imagine the bigger galaxy is Earth. Imagine the smaller satellite galaxy is the moon. And this, it says... Um, Let's see. It, this is something I think is quite funny. It, it literally has an umbrella shape. And so this is all, as what ties to last week, which is where do galaxies get their names from? 
And sometimes if an object um, or just pictures of a galaxy look to be like a distinct shape, they will be named that shape, whatever it is. And so that's something you can catch here. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are looking at APOD, the astronomy picture of the day. Um, and this is pretty funny. It says the main galaxy, which is the spiral galaxy, which is the 4651, it's about the size of the Milky Way. Um, and it's, let's see, it has the, um, yeah, the smaller galaxy is getting torn apart by this bigger galaxy. This is part of what we call a collision or a merger. And when galaxies start to collide and merge, most of the time, the smaller galaxy will start to get pulled apart first by the much larger one. And so that's what's happening here in this image. So um, that's about how much I'll get into it, I would say, probably about, yeah, about two minutes talking about Astronomy Picture of the Day. Once again, really awesome website. Um, I highly recommend you go to apod.nasa.gov, apod as in A-P-O-D, Astronomy Picture of the Day, one of my favorite websites. But now let's jump into what you can see in the night sky this week. Now, I typically break this up via northern and southern hemisphere. So I'm going to ask you all now, if you are in the northern hemisphere, if you could just send me an emoji down below. So the bottom right of your screen, there's a clapping hand or a rocket ship. I got a thumbs up. Perfect. Another thumbs up. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Perfect. Perfect. Do we have anyone that is listening that is in the southern hemisphere? Let's see. Anyone in the southern hemisphere, please do send an emoji. And if you're not, definitely, you know, please, please don't. So this way I don't have to um, think that I have both. Otherwise, if you are, do it. Okay, perfect. Awesome. So we've got quite a lot of events. We have a deep sky object. We have two space history. But we're going to start off with astronomy term of the week or astronomy word of the week. It depends on, you know, what what we're going over that week. And uh, because of what you can see this week in the night sky, uh, a lot of them are globular clusters. So I thought, what better thing to break down for Astronomy Word of the Week that, other than a globular cluster? So a globular cluster is a massive, like just gravitationally bound group of older stars, very old stars, ranging from tens of thousands to millions of stars can reach up to about 10 million stars in total. That is the, the the largest globular cluster that has ever been cataloged before. And as I mentioned, they're usually composed of older, cooler stars. Uh, older stars, they tend to be a little cooler in temperature. And this is just because they've burned through a lot of their elements in their core through something known as nuclear fusion. And so they tend to start to cool down and they also tend to expand. So like our sun, for instance, our sun is a yellow dwarf star, uh, it's a G-type, and it's currently a main sequence star. We'll go over kind of the ages of stars maybe in another episode, uh, but all those labels I just mentioned, just keep that in mind. When it starts to die, it's going to start to expand past the orbit of Mercury and then past the orbit of Venus, eventually engulfing the Earth. And it's going to stretch all the way about out to the gas giants. And it's going to become something known as a red giant star. As it expands, it's actually cooling down. It starts to get colder, not hotter. So always keep in mind in astronomy, things that are hotter tend to be bluer and whiter. So white and blue, things that are cooler tend to be red or brownish. 
Um, so that's a really clear distinction. So if you look at most pictures of globular clusters, they tend to be composed of more reddish, orangish, yellowish stars. And this is why. Um, another reason is because they tend to be located much further out from where we currently are at our place in the universe. These are older stars, as I mentioned, so they have more time to start to get attracted in towards each other, increasing this gravitational pull of every single time a star comes in, its mass is increasing, the entire globular cluster as a whole. And so it only becomes stronger, and then it pulls in more stars. And this continues as a cycle throughout times. Uh, so this is why they tend to be older. So that keeping that in mind, uh, let's jump to our deep sky object of the week. So for anyone who is located in the southern hemisphere, this object I'm about to mention is going to be visible all night long. For anyone in the northern hemisphere, if anyone is located north of five degrees latitude, you won't be able to see it. But if parts of the northern hemisphere, you still can see it. But you're going to have to be around five degrees latitude or below. If you don't know what your latitude is, it's fine. There's a really good website I like called geodatos.net. Let me just make sure. Geodatos.net. Yep. Here we go. It's G-E-O-D-A-T-O-S dot net. And you can just put in like your city and or your zip code and it'll pull up your longitude latitude. So this way you kind of know where you're, where you're located. So with that being said, uh, this object, if you can see it, is going to be visible on February 8th. On February 8th, this object is known as NGC, there's that, that catalog name again, new general catalog, 2808. And 2808 is visible in the Carina Nebula. The Carina Nebula is pretty prominent. You should be, be able to catch it. This will be located somewhere around your southern sky, your southern horizon, for those in the southern hemisphere. It's a super bright globular cluster. Um, however, you would probably be able to see it best with binoculars or a telescope, considering that its magnitude, so meaning how bright it looks to the unaided eye, um, which is a apparent magnitude, is a 6.2. And so, again, another reminder, this is on the positive end of the spectrum as opposed to the negative end. When objects are negative, if I ever say, you know, negative 4.8, it's like really luminous. You'll be able to really see it. But if it's a plus 6.2, it's really dim. The most we could see is about a plus 4. So if you're in a really dark sky, you might be able to catch it with maybe maybe the unaided eye if you have really, really good vision. Otherwise, I recommend binoculars or, of course, a telescope. So for those of my friends that are in the Southern Hemisphere, as I mentioned, it's visible all night long facing your southeastern horizon. It starts to become visible and then stays at an altitude of about 43 degrees above that horizon. So if your horizon is zero, just going 43 degrees up, you'll be able to find that. If you want to figure out how to measure that, uh, we've talked about this quite a few times already, but your fist out at arm's distance is about 10 degrees from knuckle to knuckle. So if you start to line that up and stack your fist on top of each other, eventually you make yourself up from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40. And then your um, pinky finger is about one degree 
Uh, there's a bunch of also really cool things you could do with your hands to basically measure the night sky. Um, so you can always check that out as well if you want to look that up online. But I would go with doing that that old trick with the fist. And let's see. And so that'll be visible rising at about 9.40, about 10 p.m. I would say is the best time to go out and try and see it. And it's going to be visible all the way until dawn, so up until obviously until the, the sky starts to get a little bit lighter. And for, yep, so, so that, that is about everything. If you are in the Northern Hemisphere, it's going to be sitting really low on the, on the horizon. It's only going to be about 15 to 20 degrees above your Southern horizon. It's going to be pretty tricky to see. Um, but if you're able to see it, make sure you get out pretty late. I would say sometime around 1, 12.30 to about 1 a.m. local time. And make sure that you are elevated, that you're high up um, on a hill maybe or on a rooftop. Because if you have any type of obstruction of your view, it's going to be pretty tricky to see. So that is your deep sky object for this week. It's a globular cluster in the Carina Nebula. And also, by the way, Carina Nebula, pretty cool. Uh, So you want to find this in the Carina constellation. Shouldn't be too tough to find. And the nebula itself is a really massive uh, cloud of molecular dust and gas. And so this is a really important area of of the universe of, of, of deep space where stars can form. Okay, let's move into our must-see celestial events. I'm actually going to take a quick break from this just to um, mention how excited I am for a few upcoming interviews. I've just locked in a few dates. We have Dr. Charles Liu, who's coming on, who was my mentor in college. I still see him as my mentor. He was my very first astronomy advisor when I was doing research um, and really awesome cosmologist, does research on deep, deep cosmology. So like galaxy collisions, black holes, uh, universal expansion, really awesome things. So if you have questions for him, um, definitely tune into that episode. That is going to be March 9th at 3 p.m. So I can, 3 p.m. Central Time. So I'm so, so excited for that. And then I have my special guest, Dr. Kirby Runyon, who is estimated to come on the week before that, Wednesday, March 2nd. And as of right now, I have two other guests on hold um, that are both musicians, but also have a very space electronic tie to their music and their songwriting. So it's a really nice combination of, I would say, of art and science that we've got coming up. So if you have any questions for any of these special guests, um, maybe write them down and, and join. Maybe you can call in on one of the episodes. So let's move into what we can look for in the night sky. So starting in two days on March 9th, you can see the moon near the Pleiades star cluster. The Pleiades open star cluster is so beautiful. If you haven't seen it already, it's different than a globular cluster in a way where it has less stars in it. It's sometimes you can even see up to like, like 10 of them, but sometimes they can all go all the way up to about a hundred and they're really young, hot blue stars very, very young, hot blue stars. The Pleiades are also known as the Seven Sisters, um, in case you didn't know that, or in case you know about the brand Subaru, the um, the car brand was named after the Pleiades and their logo is actually the Seven Stars. Um, even though overall the Pleiades star cluster has a lot more than seven stars within it, but the most prominent ones are the seven. 
So it's really cool to see that with the moon if you haven't caught that yet. And the moon is approaching, um, let's see, it is currently a crescent and it's moving towards our first quarter. So it should still be pretty, um, I would say, dark for you to actually catch it. It's going to be a thin crescent still, and you can see that with the Pleiades. So it's not going to be too bright. You won't have a lot of that moonlight that starts to happen as it approaches a full moon. So you still have a really good um, observing view to catch other things, such as that Aldebaran red giant star. So Aldebaran is just north and to the right of Orion, the Orion constellation, the powerful Orion, one of my favorite constellations. I think it's the favorite of a lot of astronomers, um, and just a lot of space enthusiasts as well, because it's so prominent and the stars are really bright. One of the stars is probably going to be going supernova any day now, known as Betelgeuse, red supergiant star. Uh, and then also you have Orion's belt, which are those three stars. And just underneath the belt, you have the Orion Nebula, also known as a stellar nursery, where there are new stars that are forming almost like instantaneously you have new stars that are constantly forming so that should be a beautiful sight to catch on february 9th the next night february 10th the moon is lined up with the constellation aruga which is right next to the brightest star of the constellation known as i'm uh, sorry i didn't write it down capella something kind of funny about capella is it's not one star it's a binary star system. So there's two stars. It's known as a spectroscopic binary. Um, and this is just because it's, you, even though you can't visually see the two stars, you can pick up that there are two differences of stars due to the fluctuation of their orbits, um, also due to the composition of each star. And we mentioned it last week where we talked about, uh, I was trying to come up with an example of stars that we see in the night sky that look like they're one star, but in fact, they're two or more. And uh, this is a double star system. So if you want to catch that, um, this will be February 10th. You'll be able to see the moon perfectly lined up with Capella, that binary star system within the constellation Aruga. And um, oh, another fun fact I wrote down here in my weekly transmission, those two stars are G-type yellow giant stars. So just like our sun, although our, our sun is not a yellow giant, it's a yellow dwarf, but they're G-type. And G-type uh, we'll get into that maybe in a, in a future episode, talking about the different types of stars and what that means. We spoke about it a little bit when we, when we spoke about the HR diagram and we spoke about Annie Jump Cannon for historical figures. Um, but that just means that they are at the period of their life where they are along the main sequence. If you were to put out kind of an average temperature of stars that they reach, it's currently at that kind of middle stage of its life. So it's not a newborn star anymore. It's more like an adult. It's an adult an adult star. We'll just say that as opposed to like a grandparent star um, who is, you know, like a red giant star that is approaching near the end of its starry stellar life. On February 11th, the moon is now going to pass near M35. Here's another thing that we talked about. M35. So Messier 35. This is part of the Messier catalog now. This is an open star cluster, similar to the Pleiades, different than a globular cluster. Open star clusters are made of those very young, hot blue stars. The reason they're called open star cluster is because they're 
less bound by gravity. So they're not so tightly bound, all squished together. They're actually more spaced out. But they're still attracted to each other by each other's gravitational influence. So they're still within a cluster, but there's a bit more space between them. It's kind of the simple way to put it. This is going to be located west of Gemini. So look for the Gemini constellation. It starts to rise at around, uh, I would say, like just after twilight, so about 8 p.m. local time. Uh, and this will be visible when the moon passes near it at about 9 p.m. local time. So that should be pretty cool to catch. Um, I know I never usually include deep sky objects in my must-see celestial events, but because it's aligned with the moon, I decided to do that. Our last event that you can catch for this week is going to be on February 12th, about 45 minutes before sunrise. So anyone here who's an early riser, maybe send me a, an emoji below. Um, if you're an early riser, maybe you have to get up for work. Maybe you just like to wake up early. Maybe you have a cat that's meowing at your door at five o'clock in the morning like I do. And so if you're going to be up, you have this really awesome planetary alignment of Venus, Mars, and Mercury all next to Sagittarius, but not just Sagittarius, the whole constellation. This is next to the teapot asterism. If you remember, I was talking about asterism once before. It's a pattern that's found within a constellation. So a constellation, you might say in itself, is a pattern, and it is. But sometimes we also notice these other patterns within constellations, and one of them looks like a teapot. And it's made up of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stars that are then in the Sagittarius constellation, which I think is somewhere around a total of 13 stars. But if you see this teapot shape in the sky, just to the left of it will be Venus, Mars, and Mercury, about 45 minutes before sunrise, facing your southeast horizon. So this should be really, uh, again, really beautiful to see maybe you're heading to work and you get to look up at the sky, you will be accompanied by these three very luminous planets. So that is about everything for our must-see celestial events. Uh, at our, we have a, our, also our astronomy term of the week. We also mentioned our deep sky objects. What we have left is the moon phase and our space history. I'm going to take a very short momentary music break and then we will hop back into it. And of course, at any time, if you want to join and ask me a question, you never have to worry about interrupting me. Just hit the call and button. I'd love to hear from you. All righty. So we are in the home stretch here. We have got two space events. I will jump into that. I mean, space history event. On February 11th in year 1752, NGC 3228, which is an open star cluster. We've got another open star cluster. was discovered by Nicolas Louise de la Calle from the South African Observatory known as Table Bay. Now, this is... Uh, pretty cool. This is, this is a, again, a, another third star cluster we've mentioned in, just in this one week of things that are happening. 
And you should become quite familiar with the name Nicolas Louis de la Calle because he has contributed a lot of observational hours to astronomy. Around this time period, 1752, you have astronomers like Charles Messier. You have the beginning of um, the Herschel family. So you have Caroline and William Herschel now starting to do some observations as well. Um, and you just have so many really important figures that are looking up to the heavens. And so Nicolas de la Calle has discovered so many things, including on February 11th in year 1752, the open star cluster known as NGC 3228. Then on February 15th, 1564, I don't know if it's anyone's birthday, but if you know anyone whose birthday that is, they share their birthday with Galileo Galilei. So this was the day that Galileo was born, who I don't even need to like say how important he, he ended up just contributing, how, how much amazing information he's contributed to the field of astronomy, how many discoveries, even going under house arrest for just totally contradicting what the, the, the church was believing at the time, um, and just really transformed so much of our understanding of our place in the universe. So including the Galilean moons of Jupiter, four most prominent moons that uh, you can observe with the unaided eye or with a very small telescope. Sorry, not the unaided eye, a small telescope. Um, and he, he was able to observe them and then he named them. So those are your two space history events that happened this week. Lastly, we have our, oh, we've got a caller. Woohoo. All right. We will jump into our moon phase after this. All right, Nicholas, you are on. What's up? In case you're speaking, we cannot hear you. So maybe on the bottom right, it looks like there's a microphone. Just here. go ahead and. I think I figured it out. You hear yes, me? Yes, you figured it out. Hello, Nicholas. How are you? Good. Uh, you can all hear me? Yes. Probably. Excellent. Uh, so uh, you have a uh, mentor who is, I haven't researched him at all, actually, but he is was your professor and is also a um, science communicator or astro, astro um, physicist. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He's super incredible. Dr. Charles Liu. Uh, he is an astrophysicist correlated with the Hayden Planetarium um, in New York. That's And he was, also teaches at the College of Staten Island, which is where I went to school. Wow. Yeah. That's really neat. Well, wow. It, uh, it's exciting to hear all these details about uh, what we can look up and see uh, if the weather's good, obviously. So, the, yeah. Where are you calling in from? I happen to live in Asheville, North Carolina, which is on the east coast of the United States. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know about the Carolinas. That's that's awesome. Do you, have you had um, what's the weather been like by you? Have you had any clear skies? Probably a lot of precipitation, I can imagine. Yes, uh, right now I'm looking out the window. Right now, right now it's uh, quite cloudy. I'd say it's we probably are a little bit wetter than the average place east of the Mississippi is my guess. So that's not great for astronomy, but it's not horrible either. You know. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, hopefully you get some clear skies. Um, are you also a fellow astronomer or a space enthusiast? I am a space enthusiast. I did have a telescope, actually, when I lived in India 
so I'm 46. So that was uh, over 30 years ago. Now I lived in India and I had a telescope and I honestly don't remember what I looked at. Uh, so it was not, um, there was a lot of pollution in addition to uh, weather problems. So oh, I have man. not had a lot of experience using a telescope to sight Jupiter's moons or anything like that, else like that. Sadly, compared to uh, anyone who has, um, yeah, uh, owned a telescope more recently than I'm saying 30 something years ago. So that's sort of, sort of sad in a sense, but it, it, was a, it was a good childhood experience. And I'm interested in science generally. I just haven't kept up with telescope use specifically recently, unfortunately. So. Well, well, I'm glad you you you're a listener of Space Talk. At least you get your your dose of space in every week. That's that's really awesome. I'm gonna look up um, some locations around the Carolinas to see if I could find any astronomy events that maybe um, I don't know. Maybe in summertime you can maybe attend and look through a telescope again and I don't know see like the rings of Saturn or or a deep sky yeah. object. Those happen all over the U.S. Uh, actually, all over the world. Uh, and maybe that just inspired me. Maybe I'll do an ongoing series of like choosing a city and a country that is having space events going on that is free to the public. We could attend or correlate it with the university because that's super important because like learning about this stuff through, you know, hearing, hearing me speak can be kind of annoying. <laughs> but maybe I don't know. My voice, I, we well, always think no. differently. But I, but I it's, so. well, uh, it's different than actually looking up and oh, seeing course, the course, stuff yeah, for yourself. Yeah. Uh, very, so, very different. Yeah. I thought I'd mention one kind of bizarre thing that I saw in uh, uh, Sabine Hassefeld. Uh, definitely saying her name wrong because I'm not a German speaker. Sabine Hassenfelder is a German physicist. She doesn't uh, she doesn't specialize in astronomy necessarily, but one of the things she mentioned this is really bizarre, but she mentioned this in a flat Earth episodes. It wasn't necessarily a flat earth debunking episode, but it was more like she wanted to be open-minded towards the idea of flat eartherism. And one of the things that she mentioned is that if you were really thinking that, say, NASA, I, I don't know, just to go out there, that NASA was a, um, a hoax, kind of, or that they were, uh, you know, what, whatever, but you could still get your own telescope and I think that she mentioned that just watching the, the, the moons of Jupiter through a very, you know, low cost telescope might be able to convince a skeptic against flat earther ideology, which I found interesting and bizarre. It's just it's so out there with the Internet. You never know what's going to happen. And that it was really yeah. this highly educated physicist. She wanted to take a different point of view and say, well, if I was a flat earther, or I have, you know, a friend who's a flat earther or something like that, how would I get through to them? I would give them a telescope and have them look at the moons of Jupiter. And then from a logical perspective, I don't know necessarily how that definitely, you know, proves against flat earth ideology, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. We can all yeah. agree. And I, I, I don't know. I thought I'd throw that in there just to send you on a totally different tangent. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm so happy that you mentioned that. Um, I mean, I'm not generally always happy whenever the, the, the flat earth conversation comes up. But, you know, it's, it's also something that is tied to 
our human right to question things. I mean, we we should be questioning things like all the time, whatever we want. But I do think that that's a huge step in the right direction is, you know, not only just getting a telescope, but maybe building a telescope with someone who doesn't believe in the concept that we are, you know, as a spherical oblate spheroid, um, which is the proper term technically of, of Earth. But the point is, that's something that I think would be really valuable is to actually build their own telescope or just go to space. And that's something why I'm so excited about all these space missions that are happening that are either like sponsored missions or trips or more companies that are starting to sort of compete for the race of space because that I think will eventually allow for space tourism to take place and to expand and prices of tickets can really start to go down. And the more people that actually see the curvature of Earth should then it, it should be able to combat this sort of belief that the Earth is flat because I've heard the argument that, well, all the other planets are round, but Earth is not round. I've, I've, I've heard this before. I've seen it before online. And um, it's for some reason this this really strong belief or focus that Earth is the only place that is different as far as shape goes. Um, and that doesn't necessarily obviously work when it comes to really just sort of the loss of physics and, and what's happening in the universe. So I think the main thing would actually be for sure the telescope, but to just get more people to space, because as soon as you can do that, people can see with their own eyes. They they believe it. They don't think that, you know, the whole world is trying to make this um, false, you know, this this false lie um, um, to them, because that's that's a really um, kind of sad, I would say, like a sort of sad way to sort of perceive life. <laughs> but I'm just a bit of an optimist. Uh, but thank you for, for bringing that up, uh, Nicholas. That was so awesome. And I'm so glad you're here on Space Talk. I, it's my first time seeing your name. So awesome. So happy you're here. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, on another issue, it's kind of that you have going along with that, getting more people to space. I think I saw something on um David, uh, it's David Kipping, uh, one of his graduate students on Cool Worlds, that you have a space elevator sort of going all the way to the moon to oversimplify. Yeah, that. I've seen these. That technology of, uh, yeah, these these space elevators, it's, you know, it's probably many decades away, but it definitely would up the numbers if it ever worked. It would up yeah. the numbers a lot from, you know, just a tiny percentage to uh, way over, one would hope, 1% of the population would be able to get to space. So anyway, thank you again uh, for this lovely yeah. episode. And I, I threw some bizarre spins into uh, to what you were talking about. And I love it. I love it. Thank, thank you, you for having these future uh, guests. And I would hope that one day, um, I just talked about him, so I'd mention that um, David Kipping and... Uh, from cool worlds or, or whatever, something like that, that you um, are able to communicate with them, whether or not they'd be able to appear with you would uh, yeah. be nice too. If they would, um, he, he's, he's a really strange um, science communicator that specializes in excellence to be clear. I think that is his yes. specialty. I, I'm so looking that. at his bio right now. I, yeah. It sounds like my kind of guy to chat with. I, yeah. And he's affiliated with Columbia University, which is, I have ties to that university from, from the Hayden Planetarium. So I'll, oh, I'll try wow. to reach out to him sure. for sure. Yeah. 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 In the UK, I believe, to be clear, but I guess he is now a professor in New York City. So that's really exciting that you have ties to New York and is sort of like become 
a local professor almost for you in, in as much as you consider yourself a native yeah. worker. So that's exciting. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. It's uh, Thank you, Nicholas. This has been great. And and please feel free at any time to, to jump on here and ask a question, whether or not it's re- relevant to what I'm talking about. Okay. If it's space, it's it's perfect. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Well, again, it's uh, exciting um, to hear about all these things that I would be more attuned to being able to do if I had currently owned a telescope, which I happen not to, but it uh, something I could buy again and uh, it would be exciting if I do. That sounds um, great. We'll, we'll, we'll try and change that. Um, I'll, I'll find ways to maybe like, I don't know, yeah, get recommendations. Yeah, yeah. 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 Talking to people in the United States and beyond about local uh, events would be yeah. um, very helpful. That you mentioned Perfect. That previously. Yeah. And thank you for considering that. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Nicholas, again. Um, I feel free again to call in any time. Well, thank you. All right. All righty. Um, awesome. Yay. Well, everyone, of course, if you want to jump on, you could always just click that call in button. Um, and perfect. Awesome. Uh, so th- that was that was so great. I absolutely loved that and got a really great recommendation. That's another thing. If any of you like know someone you think you would love to get an interview with or like hear an interview from, um, come on here or send me a DM of maybe a recommendation that you have now that, you know, the we're out of sort of the, the holiday season, which we kind of have been for a while, but more people are now able to sort of have, I guess, free time for interviews. And so I'm taking so many more interviews on for Space Talk. So I would love to take recommendations from any of you guys out there. Um, so I'm really excited to, to reach out to David Kipping. That's going to be great. And um, definitely already wrote down that I'm going to look into uh, putting together a an episode or ongoing series about different cities where there's space outreach events. I'll probably start with New York just because that's where I know most of the stuff from. Um, and then I'll expand beyond there. So what would probably be quite of helpful if any of you guys are my returning listeners and you call in every week, um, if you could send me a DM here on the call-in app, uh, maybe just giving me a recommended recommendation for a city, that would be great. Either a city you're in or a city that you would probably just be interested in me sharing some outreach events for. Uh, that would be awesome. Then this way we can, uh, I don't know, maybe make the space community that much closer um, to home. So that is, um, that, yeah, that, that's what that's what I that's why I love. Also, if you guys just call in for anything, because there's always something new that'll pop up. So to finalize our discussion for today, uh, the moon phase for this week is happening tomorrow on February 8th at approximately 8.50 a.m. Eastern time. The moon reaches its full first quarter phase. So that time stamp specifically is when the moon reaches that exact phase of when it's measured in its transition as it's orbiting around Earth from new moon to waxing crescent to first quarter. And first quarter looks like a half moon. So just keep that in mind when you um, look for that. So that is about everything I had prepared for today. Um, We have tomorrow, I believe, is our, let me double check, is our how space objects are named. We're going to chat about asteroids. And then we will sort of just continue this every single week until we have, um, I don't know, new topics, new ongoing series. And, of course, you guys are some of my my favorite callers my favorite people i've ever chatted with because you know we're, we're all we're all the space tribe all of us are the space tribe and we're into astronomy so that's about everything that i have 
Um, if any of you have any questions again, you can always call either in a future episode or send me a message. I hope you guys get to get out at night, look up at the night sky, and check out the stars above. Until next time, add Astra.